appreciate it, Brother Phil. I think uh, Sandy's in the back, ready for the kids to go down to uh, Children's Church, Lab Kids. And I hear that they're going to be doing some interesting things tonight, today, this morning, whenever. Mm. <laughs> well, it's, yeah, it's one of those days. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So, as the kids are heading out and going downstairs, I encourage you to... Uh, uh, open up your Bibles. We're going to be going through a few passages this morning, but I think we're going to start off in, in Ephesians chapter 3. So, but we're going to hit John, we're going to hit Luke, we're going to hit a few other places. Um, so we need to be prepared to flip. So last time I was here, speaking with you guys, it was different, right? I was in a different place. A lot of things happened, and um, you know we're here now. And the last thing I had asked was, when you came on Sunday morning, did you expect something supernatural to happen? And I wondered sometimes when we look at church and we ask ourselves, do any do do we really expect anything crazy? and supernatural to happen. Now, when I say crazy and supernatural, I'm already making a judgment, aren't I? I'm already throwing in my own thoughts into that as though we can't have supernatural without it being a little crazy. And then that brings a whole nother level because we're Baptists, right? We're people of the book and, and we oftentimes don't look at uh, some of the, the more challenging passages in Scripture and we've oftentimes walked away from the supernatural in light of what we can, contract, uh, con- we can concretely see and to feel and to touch. And the thing about serving God is that sometimes you can't always see, feel, and touch it. You know, thanks to Hollywood, and you've got to love Hollywood, they're really good about producing these images that we see. And, and the reality is they're really good at putting out images of what it means to be a demon-possessed individual. You don't have to turn too far in your channel guide to find a movie or a television or, or, or show or something that, that, that puts that out there. But, uh, and so we have those in our mind, especially if you've seen television recently. But how many times have you ever had an image in your mind of what a spirit-filled woman or man looks like? What would we do if we had somebody that showed up in here that was so filled with the Holy Spirit that their power was overflowing? Now, I say that, and all of a sudden, now you've got images in your mind, right? And you're going to say, what, is our pastor turning charismatic? Do we have to have a talk with him? Does he need to find a place maybe with, uh, in one of the more Church of God-y kind of churches? Is that the direction that he wants to go with this? No, I don't. But I think some, when, you're, when we're looking at this, we have to ask ourselves, are we truly in a place where God can move in a supernatural way in our congregation before we put a stop to him? before we ask him not to go into certain places. And we call ourselves Christians. And we have defined ourselves with what that means. That means, for the most part, that on Sunday mornings, we gather together for an hour and a half, we have a service, and we walk out of that service happy and a little bit content, maybe disappointed, maybe frustrated, maybe a little over-caffeinated, but we walk out of that service patting ourselves on the back saying, well, we're good Christians, right? And then we say, hey, maybe if we're really good Christians, maybe we'll attend a Bible study during the week, right? And, or maybe we'll do something else. Maybe we'll help Miss Wyvon give food to the poor, as long as they're the right kind of poor. We don't want to give to the wrong kind of poor, right? 
And so that's what we call church. Hmm. I wonder if Peter, James, John, Jesus even, when he was speaking to the masses, if this is what they envisioned church would look like, you know? I oftentimes look at where the church is today and how we are relating what we have experienced with God and bringing that out to a population. And then we wonder why our churches are empty and people don't want what we have. You see, we've reduced the sacred mystery of what church is to about an hour and a half experience once a week. It's kind of sad if you think about it. If you have your Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 3, I want you to hear what Paul has to say about this mystery of the body. Chapter 3, starting in the first verse, Paul says this. He says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations has not been made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his, ho- to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles, to the, the unfathomable riches of Christ, and to bring to light What is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. See, this true mystery that we're talking about and that that mystery, that word obviously was important to Paul. He repeated it several times. You know, it's interesting, when you look at the Greek in there, the word is mystery. It says mysterion. It's the same thing. We just transliterated that to the English. And back in or in our days, we think of mysteries, we think of people wearing funny hats and having a doctor by their side with a, with a magnifying glass. And that's, that's what a mystery has been reduced to us. You know, we, we think of mysteries, we think of something happened, right? A crime was committed, and somebody has to, be, has to pay for it. But in the days that Paul was writing about this mystery, there was a different thing going on. See, mystery in the Greek was a word that meant knowledge and wisdom withheld. It means information not given. It means that there was something that you don't know. Wouldn't you hate that when somebody calls you up on the phone and says, hey, I don't have time to tell you right now, but you and I have to get together in the next few days because I got something really important that you need to know. And they hang up on you, right? Wouldn't that just drive you crazy? I wouldn't be able to sleep at night. I hate when that happens. Bill does that to me all the time. He loves to come in. He says, hey, I can't wait till tomorrow morning. I really got to sit down and talk with you. I'm like, great, now I'm not going to sleep tonight. Why don't you just tell me now? You know, it really drives me insane when people do that sort of stuff. 
because I don't like not knowing. We are people that like to know. And so when you have these mystery religions that were very popular back in the day of Paul, where you said you had some secret knowledge that no one else had, it created that mystery, that, that ambiance of I need to know in your world there. I want to be included. I don't want to be left out. And so Paul is talking about this mystery. He's saying the mystery that before was not made known, now is, and that mystery is us, right? That we are part of that body. Look what he says in verse 6. To be specific, that you Gentiles, us, are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body. He's saying that we are now incorporated into the very body of Jesus Christ. We are part of that, of that entire framework that's being made up. We are now part of the plans that God has for the universe, and what are those plans? Look what he says in verse 10. So the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through what? The church, us, the body that we've been grafted into. And where are we going to make this knowledge known to? To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. We are called to cry out to the universe through everything we do and say that Jesus Christ is King and Lord. That is an incredible, incredible responsibility. We are called to be supernatural. We are called out. That's what church means, the ecclesia. We are the called out ones. We are part of a family, part of a body that's being revealed only by God. And how is he revealing that? Through us. You know, I've often wondered about, as most pastors, we often wonder, how can we get more people in the church? How can we bring people in? Last time I was up here, I talked about this idea of supernatural love. And I asked you a question. I said, the question I asked was, can you name a church that you know of that displays supernatural level love? Now, I gave you a week. At least I thought I was going to give you a week. Actually, I gave you a couple, three weeks to think about it. I haven't been able to come up with one. Now, I know some of you like to say, well, First Baptist Kenai, we're pretty, we're pretty loving. And I'm not saying you're not. But do we rise to the level of supernatural love? Because let me tell you something. You want to bring people into this building? If we're able to display a supernatural love in this building towards, our, towards each other, that is an attractive thing. That draws people to us. You say, are you sure about that? I'm pretty positive. In fact, if you'll turn with me to John chapter 13, we can see what Jesus actually says about this very topic. You see, Jesus said a lot of things. And he had a lot of discussions. And then almost the entirety of the last half of the book, the Gospel of John, is, is, is about the last, the, the last teachings of Jesus Christ himself. Chapter 13, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's sharing more wisdom to them. And near the end of that chapter, he's talking about his departure, his getting ready to leave. We see that in 13, starting in, I'm going to start in 31, but the, the meat of what I want to talk about is in 34. But in verse 31, chapter 13, the book of John, you see that Jesus is now discussing with his disciples, right? Giving them some, some serious theology. He says, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. Okay, I get you. I'm right there with you, Jesus. If God is glorified in him, and God will also glorify him in himself. Okay, that's a little out there, but I think I can ponder that. And, and he will glorify him immediately. Okay, we're with you, Jesus. Jesus continues and says, little children. Okay, he's talking to me, right? He's talking to us. We are the little children because that's how he refers to those that are, that, are, that are children in the faith. Little children, he says, I am with you 
a little while longer. You will seek me, as, and as I said to the Jews, now I also will say to you, because where I am going, you cannot come. Okay, we understand that, especially in light of the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He's now in heaven. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. How can we, how can we take this and, and move further? Jesus continues, knowing that we're going to be reading these words 2,000 years later. He says in verse 34, a new commandment I give you, and here it is, that you love one another even as I have loved you, and you also love one another. Okay, we got that. But it doesn't stop there, Right? It doesn't stop with the love commandment. We've had that before. We understand that's what we're supposed to be doing. But there's, a, there's another little caveat he puts in verse 35 that you have to look at, that you have to recognize. He says, by this love that you're showing one another, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I had said to you guys before, and I believe in this very, very wholeheartedly, you know, God's not taking attendance. He's not counting numbers. God's not about bucks or butts, nickels and noses. No matter how much we as human beings like to have bottom lines and numbers, we like to have our budgets in order, we like to have our ministries funded, we like to have all the different things that we want in our church, the reality is God's not concerned with the numbers in this church. He's concerned the number of disciples that are being made from this church. That's where we are. You know, if you think about it, every single person sitting here, you, me, everybody, we're here because somebody at some point in our life brought us here. Whether it was our mother and father when we were newborn infants, or whether it was a friend that said, you need to be here. Maybe it was a neighbor or a co-worker, or maybe it was a trusted elder or somebody that you respected, a mentor. Somebody brought you to this place, maybe not this church, but this place where you had the privilege to be able to enter into a lifelong discipleship with Jesus Christ, a journey as you walk with him. Every one of us is here because somebody took the time to bring us. That's a display of supernatural kind of love. And the thing is, and you know, I read this, sometimes when you can do this, and this is the challenge when you're reading these large chapters and these big passages, is sometimes it's easier to divorce this section of Scripture from everything else and just apply this, right? We're just going to look at 34 and 35, and we're just going to deal with that. It's easy to do that. But it's interesting that Jesus wasn't dealing with theological principles that were way up here. I mean, he was, but he wasn't. Because right before he gave this weighty discussion on, on loving all of humanity so that we can see the God transform lives, just before this happened, he picked up a towel and washed the feet of the disciples. I mean, think about this. He's talking to them about loving one another so intensely, so awesomely, so supernaturally, that they are, you, you just walk out of your presence with that individual knowing that you have been loved to your core. This is the kind of supernatural love. And while he's saying that, the towel he used to wipe the dirty feet of the dude sitting at that table was still on the floor or the table or the bowl or whatever he did with it. It's still sitting there. And they're talking to Jesus. They're hearing him say, love each other with an intensity that goes beyond anything you understand. And if they even needed an object, they could look at that towel that he used to scrub their grungy toes. It's right there. That's tough. 
I think we need to examine our love. And we need to be cautious about examining our love because sometimes it's easy to say, well, yeah, I love Joe. I love Billy. I love Tom. They're good people. But do we really love them? Look at the warning Jesus gave in the very beginning of the book of Luke, chapter 6. Flip over just, just for a second or two. When I say a second or two, we're not really going to go back to, to John 13 except by reference. Chapter 6 is Luke's discussion and Luke's recounting of the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 32, or chapter 6, verse 32, you can see that he's discussing this idea of, of characteristics of a, of, a, of a great disciple. And I really want to go into all this, but our time is, is short, and we're not going to be able to read the entire passage. But I encourage you to go back and start in verse 20 and just read through this. It's very similar, obviously, to chapter 5 in the book of Matthew, Sermon on the Mount, because it's I'm talking about the same thing. But look what he says here in verse 32. He says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that for you? For it's sinners love those who love them. But if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. We need to ask ourselves, is just loving generically that supernatural love that Christ is talking about, is that what we're really asking us to do? I mean, take a look around you. When was the last time that we looked at the person sitting near them, not a family member, not a, a mother or a sister or a husband or a small child. I'm talking about somebody that's sitting near you in this building right now. When was the last time you looked at them, a fellow believer, and selflessly wanting to bring them life and happiness no matter what the cost us personally? When was the last time we did that? I mean, think about that for a minute. We ask ourselves, why is the building not as full as it could be? Why do we have 100 chairs out there but not 100 bodies in them? I'll tell you why. Because when people look in from the outside looking in, they don't always see this. You see, the supernatural love is what God really wants from us. Now, if you think of the cost that Jesus took to bring us to this place, to bring us to this place where we could actually seek God uninhibited, where we can go deeper into him. You know, in John chapter 6, verse 66, yes, that's John 6, 6, 6. It's a rough verse. It's actually a pretty rough verse. I'm, I mean, you can turn there if you want to. I'm, I'm not going to quote it. But it, the, the idea here is that in this verse, it's the verse where literally many of the disciples who had been sitting there listening to what Jesus had to teach and say, and the many disciples that were following him and the crowds that were there, he was asking them that they, he was telling them the cost of discipleship. He was saying, this is what it's going to mean to be my disciple and to make others like you and to like me and, and make these disciples like we're calling you to do. He says, when you look at this cost, it may be too much. Scripture said many left him. I can only begin to imagine. As a pastor, and I've seen church members come and church members go. I've seen them leave because they're angry at me. I've seen them leave because job took them elsewhere. I've seen them leave because they just drifted away and we weren't able to connect, connect to them on a, on, a, on a deeper level. And it's hard to see them walk away. I can only imagine what it's like to be God himself and to see people drift away. Because God, Jesus has the privilege of knowing the end of everybody's existence and where they're going to be. And I think that's 
a telling tale for a church is asking ourselves, do we really recognize what it takes for us to be here? We talked about making disciples. And I ask you, where are your disciples? Look around you. Ask yourself. If everybody in here was brought because somebody else brought them here, even if we just say this building, well, who brought you? Okay, that's easy. Because a lot of us can do that. Who have you brought? Who is your disciple? Where are your disciples? Facebook is a terrible thing. It really is. But it's also a tool that can be used. I wonder if there was a Christian equivalent of Facebook, like Face Disciple or, I don't know, I Disciple. I don't know, something silly like that. Where we could track the people that we're actually working with and we can be tracked by those that are working with us. I've said many times that every Christian ought to be a disciple and make a disciple. We should be in the process of bringing people to where we are as we're seeking to move to a place where we have a mentor, somebody that is guiding our journey and our walk with Christ. And if you're not a disciple and you're not making a disciple, are you really a Christian? That's a question you'd ask. Because there's levels here. We're talking about supernatural love, but there's something else I think that's very attractional to a church, something that we don't always see, and that's a supernatural level of unity. I'd mentioned this a week ago, or a couple weeks ago when I was up here. The idea that, that we have this, 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 this connectedness in ourselves, that we as a body of Christ are drawing closer to each other than we've ever been before. We're still talking about the book of John. Some of you turned over there when I said John 6. Uh, verse 66. I want you to keep going a little further over to John 17. I want you to see this is the high priestly prayer. Some of you guys have read this numerous times. And in John chapter 17, Jesus is praying on behalf of us, on behalf of his disciples, on behalf of everything that's going on around him, to him, with him, and through him. And the prayer itself is just a masterpiece of prayer. And I think it's a model for all Christians to pray. But in John chapter 17, starting in verse 20, we get to see a a little larger window in some of the things that he's praying for. And you see that in verse 20. He says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone. Talking about the ones that were there in the garden with him. The ones that were going to go through the present experience of seeing him crucified and dead. He says, I do not ask on behalf of those alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. That means us. Those that believe in Jesus through the word of the apostles that have gone through that trauma, that tragedy, that triumph, and given us their story that we might be able to take that gospel truth and carry it to a world that needs to know it. He says, this is who he's praying for. He's praying for us at this moment. Verse 21, he says that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Did you catch that? Look what he says here. He says, I'm praying that they, us, may be one. Even as you, Father, and I are one. We are called to a supernatural level of unity. 
that's on the same level of the connection between Jesus and God the Father. Have you ever even considered that this is possible in any church? Have you ever even considered that this is possible here at First Kenai? That's a pretty powerful thing. See, Jesus didn't pray that we would just get along, right? Get along to go along. He didn't ask us just to, just to agree to disagree. He was praying that our supernatural unity would prove to the whole world that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and is real and alive in us. In Acts chapter 2, in verse 46 and 47, you don't have to turn there, we've mentioned this before, but it talks about the level of unity that was in the church that was so powerful. It says, day by day, they were continuing with one mind in the temple. Day by day, they were breaking bread together. Day by day, with gladness and and sincerity in their heart, they were praising the name of God. And the Bible says that that daily, the church had numbers that were being added to them. That's called being fearless in our unity. This is not about avoiding arguments. This is not about trying to make, the, uh, make sure that our point of view is brought out. It's not about just simply stepping back and saying, well, I just won't argue, I won't complain, I'll just let things go. This is a more, deeper than that. I mean, ask yourself, if we truly are a family, if we truly are called to be one body, what does it take to keep a family together? You ever thought about that? Some of your parents out there know. And the longer your kids are alive and the older that they grow, you know, the harder it is to keep things unified. You know, it took a tragedy like we had to go through for my two kids to come back home. It's the first time in three years that all my kids, aside from my oldest, were in one house together. I hated to have the tragedy happen, and I hated to have that be the reason that we got together, but it's not easy to keep a family together. I ask you, how much grace needs to be expended to keep the family together? How often do our desires have to be lovingly laid aside to meet the needs of the other members of the body of the family? You know, are we really called to create disciples? What are we actually trying to make? What, is, what kind of disciples are we trying to really draw together? If we're talking about a supernatural unity, a supernatural love that's going to be attractional to the world, something that they want to, to, to jump on board with, are we really doing a good job doing that? You know, I look at, I'm a student of other religions. I've, I've spent some time studying um, most of the major religions out there, and, and some of them are fun to just Read, it's almost like science fiction, you know, and you start reading it, you're saying, this is really cool. I really feel bad for anyone that's not a man and that's, that's, uh, that's in the Mormon church, I really do. I'm not trying to pick on the Mormons, but if you're not a guy, you're kind of got the short end of the stick, right? Because you don't really get anything in the afterlife, and you've got to be a good Mormon. You've got to give to the church, you've got to have multiple wives, you've got to do all kinds of crazy stuff. And your women, part of the women in the Mormon church, they don't get to go to heaven unless the guys let them. So imagine how the woman, every time she cooks a meal, she's wondering, is this the meal that's going to keep me out of heaven, right? Every time that she has a disagreement or an argument with her husband, is this the argument that's going to keep him from not calling my secret name at the afterlife and bringing me to heaven with him? So I can be eternally pregnant and have his spirit babies. Wait a minute. Yeah, this is a real religion, okay? And I was, you know, there are other ones, like, I'm not going to go into the names, but there are other faiths out there that actually believe 
None of us are going to heaven, except for just a few people, right? And they've already been chosen. How can you be part of a religion where you know no matter what you do now, till the day you die, you're just going to get trapped here on earth for the rest of eternity? How is that a good thing? I live here on earth, right? I don't want to be trapped here for eternity. I expect something better when I die. I expect to step into glory and see all of heaven laid out in front of me as God says, welcome, my good and faithful servant. Here is your reward, my rest for eternity. That's what I'm looking forward to. If you told me that you, I would have to work, and I mean really work, right? Really work to become a good whatever that religion is. You guys know what it is. Um, and... <laughs> And no matter what I do, I can't go to heaven. That, is, that sucks. That's horrible. That is not what anybody wants. You know? But then you look at the, more, the Muslim faith. I mean, that's a crazy religion to begin with. Again, another one of those works-based theologies. And you have to work hard to be a good Muslim. And even in the last dead moment of, of, of existence, they still don't know if they're going to make it into heaven, right? They have, to, they have to do everything that they're told to do and to work their butts off just to make it into the afterlife. Maybe it's they have to wear a vest, or they have to kill themselves, they have to do this or that. Whatever it is they have to do to get into heaven, and then they have to stand in front of Allah, and they still aren't guaranteed, right? You didn't kill yourself well enough, you know? What? What more do you have to give to a God for them to want to let them in heaven, right? It's still up there in the air. Now, we think that's crazy, we laugh, we chuckle about it, but the reality is it's true. We know this. Now, what would you do if you saw a newspaper ad that the local Muslim faith church, I don't know, do we even have one here? I don't think we have one here. We do? Okay. So what if we had a local Muslim congregation that put an ad in the paper that's, that were saying, hey, if you come to our services next Sunday, we'll give you a free iPad. That would be awesome, wouldn't it? And we'd sit around here saying, oh my gosh, is their God so weak? They think I give away iPads to draw people in? But I see churches doing that every week and all throughout the United States. What kind of message are we sending to the world? You know? Come to our church, we have lattes. Come to our church, we have Awanas. Oh, wait, we do have Awanas. I like Awanas. Still, are you coming to church because of Awana? Or are you coming to church because you want to meet Jesus Christ? And wait a minute, is church a building that we're coming to so we can do it? Or is church something we want to join to be a part of so that we walk out of here? We're still the church. Do we want a place that when, when your life just completely crumbles around you and you don't even know how to open your mouth to say, I need help, and the body feels your pain, comes alongside you and says, I know you don't know what to do next, but that's what we're here for. See, that's supernatural love and unity. You know, the sad part is, you don't see the Muslims, you don't see Jehovah's Witness, you don't see Mormons doing any of these crazy gimmicks to get people into their churches, but they can't keep people out of them. They're not having problems recruiting. We are. And so we have to ask ourselves, well, we call ourselves the body of Christ, we call ourselves a church, we call ourselves the harbingers of supernatural love and unity, but are we doing this? No. Are we really attractional to the world? Or are we doing what we've always done? We're creating individuals that show up every once in a while to the things that we plan. They throw some money at us and occasionally give food to the poor and walk away feeling better in themselves. And we're calling that Christianity. 
The reality is, is that we've done this to ourselves, right? We've created a church that does this. I heard somebody say once that, that, um, that your organization is uniquely suited to create exactly what you have right now. Think about that. That what we have right now is what we've been doing well, sort of, some days. But is this what we want? Or do we want something more? Do we want the kind of disciples that leave this place and do something truly amazing for God? Most of you guys were born and raised here. Some of you guys spent a significant amount of time here. I'm not one of those people. I'm still here. I'm still young. We're now six so six winters. I'm still counting winters, Mike. I don't know if that's a good thing. Um, I'm six winters into this, right? Dan didn't think I was going to make it this long. I didn't think I was going to make it this long. But God is good. He knows what he's doing, right? And he's got a plan, pathway. We're six years into this, six winters here in Alaska. And I don't know what God has in store for us. I'm hoping and praying that he has for another six, seven, eight, 10, 15 years. Who knows? I'd love to be able to spend my last dying breath in this church, in this place. I love Alaska. That's God's choice, not mine. I will go where he tells me to go and do what he tells me to do. But that being said, what would happen if something in your life just completely changed and you were forcibly moved from Kenai, Alaska to, like, I don't know, Zimbabwe? And you say, well, that's crazy, that'll never happen. How about if you were forcibly moved to, say, St. Louis? Well, that's, not, that's not nearly as complicated as, as uh, Zimbabwe. Better, yeah, better, better road systems, you know, better food, but, better barbecue. But if you were suddenly transplanted to any city on the planet, would you know what to do? Would you be able to start a Bible study? Would you be able to begin a church? Would, now, I'm not talking about a church with bricks and mortar. I'm talking about a church, I mean, a body of believers gathered together and replicate what we have right here. Could you do that? Would you do that? But isn't that what we're called to do? Go unto all the world, preach the gospel. Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I asked you a question last time I was here. What if? What if we as a congregation, we as a body of Christ, what if we sought Jesus with an intensity that burned brighter than the sun? Right here, First key nine. What if we loved one another so sacrificially that we regularly spent as much time building the body up as we do building ourselves up or more? What if we shared this gospel, the gospel we're talking about, this love, this unity, this, this amazing opportunity to focus on what Christ has called us to do, shared this gospel so boldly that we were drawing everyone that could come to be a part of what we're, what we're building here. What would that look like? You know, we've gotten really good, I think, at getting people to show up over the years at our events. But are we really making disciples? And I ask you again, who does God want you to pursue? If all of us here believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior, if all of us here believe that we've been called 
by the Son of God to serve him. If we all of us call ourselves Christians, then all of us should be asking ourselves, who are our disciples? Where is God leading us? It's easy to throw on to the professional pastor. Oh, it's your job to make disciples. It's your job to do this. It's your job to do that. Oh, if we only had more Bible studies. Only if we only had, if we only had more singing. If we, if we had only had more hymns on Sunday morning. Phil, are you listening? If we only had more hymns, brother. Maybe, just maybe, we'd have better disciples. No. Pony. I want a pony. Maybe we can get ponies we have better disciples. No. No. I think when it comes down to it, you, me, everybody in here, we're deficient. You say, well, pastor, I'm a father. I'm a, I'm a mother. I've got, my, I've got my life I'm trying to lead. My disciples are my kids. And I'm not denying your disciples are your kids. But they're not your only ones. Every one of us connect. Every one of us reach out. Every one of us meet people. And if you need a list, just walk through any grocery store in our area and just see, let God, ask God, show me somebody. Show me somebody that I can work with. Show me somebody that I can talk to. Show me a neighbor or a friend or a coworker. I guarantee you, you'll have a list as long as you're armed before you leave the store. Because what I see in this community is people without hope. What I see in this community is people that need Jesus desperately. What I see people out there in this community is people that need to see a love that's sacrificial, a unity that transcends what they have. They need something to draw them closer. And it's not a gimmick. It's just the gospel. So I ask you this morning, are you willing to do whatever it takes to love with an intensity that bright? Are we willing to serve God? Are we willing to be his disciples and make disciples? And I know there's other people here that, hopefully not, but there might be at least one or two people in here that doesn't know Jesus Christ, their Savior. And if you don't, please don't leave here today without getting your heart right. This is a place where discipleship can begin. This is a place where you can begin to learn how to serve God more intensely. I would love for this church to one day be the church be the church that is not drawing people in. I would love for us to look out in this congregation and see this number of empty seats and not, see, not say, why are these empty seats empty? But we can say, that seat right there used to belong to John Biddle and now he's in Russia. That seat used to belong to Tammy Biddle, and now she's in Thailand. That seat used to be, uh, belong to Jim Smith, and now he's in Botswana. That seat over there used to belong to Sally, and now she's in St. Louis, serving God, building the kingdom. Wouldn't that be amazing? That we don't look at our empty seats as a crime and as something to be sad about, but as something to rejoice because we know that God's people are moving in, getting trained, and moving out. And maybe you say, well, pastor, I don't want to go to St. Louis. I don't like their barbecue. Well, I don't blame you. I don't either. But maybe God's calling you right here. There are lots of ministries. There are lots of things that need help. You don't have to give up your Sunday morning. You don't have to give up your body in order to make that happen. As we speak, there is a group of people that are starting to begin to, to, uh, to meet. It's a recovery church. They're going to meet at different times and it's going to be in different locations. They haven't even got a firm location yet. But this is a group of people of, that are recovering from addictions. The kind of people that probably would never feel comfortable sitting in this room. But they need a place too. Out north, there's a group of individuals that sacrificially give every afternoon to teenagers, feeding into their lives. They just want some adults to hang out. 
We've got churches being planted down the road. And as some of you say, well, we've got enough churches in Kenai. Yeah, we probably do. But do we have enough churches that are teaching the kind of sacrificial love and supernatural unity that we're talking about in the gospel? Probably not. I ask you, where is God leading you this week? And I encourage you to look in his word. In your bulletins, I put a flyer. Flyer says 59 one others in the word of God. That's a lot of one others. One another, one others, one another. Yes. And you say, Pastor, I don't know how to begin with this whole process. Well, I'll tell you how you begin. I gave you a resource. Take that, put it on your refrigerator. Put a nice, strong, powerful magnet so the dogs don't jump up and knock it down and the kids don't use it as a coloring page. And start tomorrow with number one. Spend 15 minutes reading on that scripture and praying how God can show you how to do that. And for the next 40 days, take those 59 one another's and read them, pray about them, and ask God to reveal his wisdom to you through them. And in 40 days, tell me how your life has changed. I guarantee you, if you do that, he will change you. The process will change you. Because you can't stay where you are now, unchanged, with that level of prayer and time spent in God's word. And that's just 15 minutes a day. So I encourage you to think about it, pray about it, look at your one another's, and ask yourself, am I fulfilling these examples of a true disciple of Christ in the world around me? Let's go ahead and pray, and we'll get, we'll get going. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the day you've given us. We thank you for the privilege to be here. Lord, we know that as uh, time moves on and as things change, Lord, you've called us to something greater and higher, something that transcends anything that we understand. Father, we're asking you to create in us a real right spirit. Lord, I ask that you'll create within us a, a level of discipleship that goes beyond anything we understand, discipleship that's not found in a classroom or on sheets of paper, but found living life with people around us as we seek to understand what it really means to be a supernatural follower of you, as we seek to dive deeply into your word and your grace, as we seek to share that love with those that need it the most. Father, I ask that you'll reach into our congregation and help us to truly love here at home before we seek to go outside these walls, that we might truly love each other in a way that we've never done before. And Father, I ask that you'll reach us beyond anything we can understand so that we might truly be able to have that peace that you talk about in your word, fill us, that we might be truly spirit-led, filled with your, with your spirit, Lord, speaking boldly, sharing what you've told us to share. Lord, go before us this week, help us to be your servant. Lord, I just pray if there's anyone in here that doesn't know you, as we open up the altar, we ask you to bring them, draw them. Don't let them leave here today without getting their heart right, that they might begin the process of being your disciple. Lord, we love you, we thank you, we ask this now in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Brother Phil. Amen. If you'll stand for the hymn of invitation.